0: Philippians chapter 4, I just wonder how long has it been since I told you what a great privilege it is to be pastor of Berean Baptist Church. Now, As I come in looking at all the work that's done in Bible school, all of the very busy people who have taken off from jobs and to come here to help and work in Bible school, I just think it's a, a tremendous blessing to our church. It just says a whole lot about Uh, what God is doing here, and we thank Him for that. And it's just a privilege to be able to preach the Word of God. It's a a blessing to see people receive the truth of God's Word and really want to learn more. Uh, Recently, I was speaking to a friend from Napa, and we were uh, talking for a few minutes, and he said, well, how is your church doing? And usually when a preacher asks you that question, what he means is, how many people do you have going to your church? And uh, really, when you ask how a church is doing, that's a question that should be geared towards the spiritual health of a church. How is the church doing spiritually? Well, this particular person wasn't a preacher. He was a layman. And so I took his question in the right way. And I said, well, the church is doing remarkably well. There's a great spirit in our church. Uh, Things are quite different than what they were A few years ago, there's a real interest in the Word of God. There's an interest in learning God's Word rather than focusing on things that are external. And the health of the church is really based on giving glory to God and living our lives for that purpose rather than thinking, well, we're great spiritual people because we have this list of rules that we keep that other people don't keep. And as we look at this letter of Paul to the Philippians, I think this is one where Paul is evaluating the spiritual health of the church. And I mentioned before that this wasn't a real problem church like others that Paul dealt with. It's not the Corinthian church that was beset with all of those moral problems. It wasn't the church like the churches of Galatia that had doctrinal problems. It wasn't even like the church at Thessalonica who had to be reminded and straightened out on the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. Here's a church that really doesn't seem to have those kinds of problems. But this was a church that needed encouragement because it seems that they were prone to division. I don't think the divisive factors in this church were full-blown yet, but they were blossoming. And so what Paul does, he gently steers them away from division by speaking about unity of the faith and then teaching how that Christ was a servant, a condescending servant, one who was willing to lower himself in order to serve others. And as a body of Christ, his church, when we learn to lower ourselves, that can solve a multitude of problems. Indeed, Jesus said that those who exalt themselves will be abased and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so when we come to this fourth chapter, it seems like division is the real intent of this letter. And I think you could say that as Paul is approaching that problem of division, that he sort of skirts the issue... Uh, In the very beginning, he's kind of going all around it to try to set us up for correction of the problem. And so he goes into a lot of doctrinal issues to finally get to the practical application of the letter. But that's necessary because whenever you have a problem in the church, it's usually not an isolated problem. There are tentacles that go out from a problem and they seem to grip and grasp just about everything that's going on in the church. And so what Paul is doing here as he approaches chapter 4 and giving the doctrinal side and working up to the problem in the church, he's peeling away the tentacles of this problem. He's going to get down to the root of it. He's going to attack it uh, at the very body of it. But he's going about it in a particular certain way to do that. And so a church is healthy whenever you can get rid of all the disease portions that are there. Now that's kind of where I decided to focus these two messages that we've entitled Stand for Something. Churches have a multitude of problems and to root out those problems, you have to go into some very important areas and determine that we're not going to give up our position in these areas. So Paul writes... In Philippians chapter 4, we'll stand with me if we will we'll read this. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and we'll see a little bit of the problem cropping up here. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech you, Odeus, and beseech Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord." And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Wednesday night study. We thank you for those who've come out to hear the word of God. And many of the folks here tonight have spent the day in Bible school. They've already been working in the church and We know people are tired, but Lord, we just thank you that there's a thirst, there's a hungering for your word, and we're just uh, so pleased to be able to deliver this to your people tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, Stand fast in the Lord. Now there's one commentator who wrote this concerning standing fast. He says, the practical outcome for the Christian is not so much to advance into battle as to stand. If we were writing the passage and were using Paul's image, we should most likely speak of invasion, marching, or conquest. But Paul does not do that. Instead, he speaks of standing. God does not tell us to march into battle or to conquer in spite of our great hymn, Onward, Christian Soldiers. He tells us to stand. And the implication of that command is that God has already done or is doing the conquering. We're only to hold the ground He conquers. And I think that's a great assessment. There are some areas in which we have to stand. We can't waver in these. We can't shrink back from them. Because if we do, we'll destroy the effectiveness of the church. And eventually we will destroy the life of the church. So we're looking at some areas in which we are to stand. And the last message, we looked at two of these areas. First of all, we're to stand for the Lord. And I contrasted the difference between standing in the Lord and standing for the Lord. We stand in the Lord who gives us our strength for spiritual warfare. He's given us weapons like the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit... And we're to use those weapons because the ability to stand in the Lord doesn't come from us. Our ability to persevere in the Lord is not by our own strength. We stand in Him because this is the Lord doing this for us. This is God working in us. But we're also to stand for the Lord. And that is just as essential as standing in the Lord. Now we have this argument about synergistic and monergistic salvation... And even though we do believe that regeneration is monergistic, we ought not ever to think that there are absolutely no parts of salvation that are not synergistic. This is the synergistic part of our salvation. This is where God expects us to go to work. This is something that requires our activity. And so we don't passively stand for the Lord. We have to be in action. Now there are two essential areas for standing for the Lord... One is to stand for his deity and the other is to stand for his authority. The deity of Christ is attacked by cults and even in some degree it's attacked by those who claim to be orthodox Christians. But we have to stand firmly on this doctrine. We can't waver that Christ is co-equal, he's co-eternal with the Father. We stand firmly on Trinitarian doctrine that says that Father, Son and Holy Ghost are one and they're equal power and authority and when you begin to undermine the deity of Christ by denying those doctrines then you will by necessity undermine the authority of Christ but God in the Bible is Jesus Christ and he's been given all power and authority in heaven and earth we've been studying that great passage in Matthew chapter 5 verses 17 through 20 and we pointed out there that Jesus exalted the scripture And whenever the Word of God says that Jesus Christ is the living Word, then what that does, it equates biblical authority with Christ's authority. And then we also discuss that we are to stand with the leader. We find this in verse number 3 when... Paul calls these Christians in Philippi, those who labored with me. They stood with him. They supported his work as a minister of the gospel. And I believe the Bible does teach that a pastor is to be a co-laborer with the people. He's to be a fellow worker with the membership of the church. But that doesn't negate the obligation of the people to respect the leadership of the pastor. So how do you stand with the leader? Well, we discussed that. Uh, One of the things that you do is you pray for him. And there's no one who's more acutely aware of the need of prayer than the pastor. The pastor is the one who's at the forefront of Satan's attacks. And if the spiritual leader is torn down, then the people can very quickly follow behind. Now, maybe that's not the way it should be. Maybe you should stand for the Lord no matter what, no matter what your leader does. I know that's what you should do, but we all know we live in a real world. And what usually happens when a leader falls is he takes people with him. And so you have to be sure that you keep the leader strong by praying for him. How can you stand with your leader? You can also protect him. Don't let accusations fly around without being answered. Whenever somebody says something bad about the pastor, then you stand up for him. You defend him. And if he's teaching you the word of God, you don't let the naysayers feast on your pastor. And then how else should you stand with your leader? Well, you ought to also minister to him, take care of his physical needs, support the pastor financially so he can devote himself to the work of the ministry. And so there's no one who ought to begrudge whatever money that it takes to to support the pastor and his household. Recently, there was one of the members of the church that, that, that phoned me up, and he said, I'd like to take you out to lunch. And he said, would you meet me at a certain, certain place? I rarely turn down food, and so I said, sure, I'll, I'll meet you there. And after we were finished eating, I thanked him for the lunch. And then he said to me, he said, well, you just have to do this for the one who teaches you the Word of God. And folks, you don't know how far, just, how far that kind of thing goes. Just a small thing like that, just a word of encouragement, just kind words, that really helps a pastor out, that helps the minister. But I want to move on now and talk about two more aspects of how we need to stand. I think we can draw a couple of more inferences from these three verses. Now, thirdly, thirdly, a stand for the faith. Now, most of you know me very well, and you know that I can't go very long preaching on these kinds of things without telling you how Christians need to stand for the faith. We live in a compromising world. We live in a time when successful ministries are gauged not by what you believe, but by how many people that you can bring in. I mean, no matter how you do it, as long as you can pack the pews, that's what counts. Packing the pews, you know, that's, that's the goal of the uh, church growth movement. And I'm getting emails and mailers all the time of people want to tell me how we can grow the church. And I notice as I read those things that there's none of them that talks about preaching the Word of God. They don't talk about exposition of Scripture. Uh, They don't talk about faithfulness to the Bible. What they talk about is campaigns, and they talk about gimmicks and marketing. You know, I've never seen in the Scriptures that the way that we are to grow a church is in any other way but by preaching the gospel of Christ. Paul does not say, grow your church by improving your music program." And he doesn't say, grow your church by starting an AA program in your church. And God doesn't say that uh, the focus of growing your church ought to be a Christian school. Now, that's a good thing, but that's not how you grow a church. You grow a church by paying attention and teaching the Word of God. And if that's not the focus of the way we grow the church, then we're growing weeds and not wheat. Here's what Paul said to Timothy, preach the Word the instant in season out of season reprove rebuke exhort with all long suffering and doctrine now let me camp right on that one for just a minute what do we do well we stand for the defense of doctrine now some people just get a puzzled look on their face when you start talking about doctrine what do you mean we need to stand for doctrine because those are the kind of people that are all about stained glass windows and, and chandeliers. Some of them like organs and some like guitars and drums. Some like socials. Some like the atmosphere. Some like the aesthetics of church. And if you can get all those things right for them, then they'll come to your church. But how many people join a church because they want to know what you believe? What is your doctrine? Now, I remember when I first came to Berean Baptist that uh, I sat in the pew... And I listened and I heard the messages, and I decided, well, I'd like to know a little bit more about this church before I join it. So at that time, of course, Pastor Cregan was here, and, and so I set up a meeting with him. And I don't know what he was expecting, but when I went into the office, we sat down, and I came with a list of doctrines. And I said, What do you believe about this? And what do you believe about this? And what about that doctrine? Where do you stand on all these Bible doctrines? And he had sort of a shocked look on his face because, as a pastor, we don't often get those kinds of questions. People don't often come in the office and want to know about your doctrine. And whenever I talk to people who've made a decision against coming to Briam Baptist Church, rarely have I met any that say, well, I evaluated your doctrine, and I just figure you're not teaching the truth. Doctrine was never the consideration. They were looking for something else. Now, what I'm telling you is that Berean is never going to try and fix anything at the expense of doctrine. Doctrine matters to me. And I'm not going to conduct a Sunday morning forum class where people ask questions and and I say, well, that's what you think? doesn't matter. It's all relative anyway. Oh, the Bible is a book of doctrine. If there's anything that I want to know, is what is the Bible's doctrine? What is the Bible teaching? What is it saying to me? What is the implications of it? How does this statement fit with that statement? Now, when I was talking to this friend, uh, when he asked me how the church was doing, we were talking about a few of these things, and I was telling him how the character of the church had changed, how that attitudes had changed, interests have changed, people have a new look at the Scriptures. Uh, People have changed their worldview. There's a new interest in, in, in the Scripture. I mean, that whole thing is renewed. There's a thirst for learning. And you know where I laid all of that? I laid it at the feet of doctrine, teaching doctrine. Most notably, I laid it at the feet of the doctrines of grace, because I think that changes everything. The Bible suddenly comes alive, and now this begins to fit with that. This works with that. Now you don't come to those dead ends anymore. Now, now the, the Bible makes sense. Now I see God differently. Now I see me differently. Now I see my responsibilities differently. I see my place. I see God's place. I see how the universe works differently. It's a whole, whole different coloration when it comes, when you understand how God is sovereign, and you understand the doctrines of gay, grace. And so when we were discussing this, he he said to me, he says, well, since I came to understand this, and he had a background like many of you have had, and he said, since I came to understand this, he said, I find God's sovereign work on nearly every page of the Bible. Folks, doctrine matters. What you believe about the Bible matters. I've told you before that, that we have the name Baptist out there on the sign for one purpose, It defines us doctrinally. That's why you put those things out there, because there's a difference in doctrine. Now, admittedly, you have to look beyond the name on the sign anymore, and you have to dig a little bit deeper to see what the doctrine of the church really is. But you know it didn't used to be that way? There used to be a time when a church put uh, Baptists on the sign out there that nearly every Baptist church in America believed exactly what we're teaching in Berean Baptist Church today. Every Baptist church was holding to the same doctrine that I'm teaching you now. And that's just not me saying that. Pick up your history book and read the historic Baptist confessions of faith in America and see what you come up with. But that's not true anymore. Why isn't it true? Because somehow, somewhere, churches stopped standing for the faith. The old doctrine started to be replaced with new church doctrine. And uh, so you have what we have today. Let me read something to you that was printed recently in a Baptist magazine. The author says this, Recently a gentleman took issue with an article I wrote on the subject of Calvinism. In the course of our discussion, I said, Look, smarter people than us have debated this issue for years without convincing the other side. It seems that a lot of time is spent on the internet and in blogs, criticizing and arguing. I just wish we would take all this energy and instead of arguing about it, just go and try to win someone to Christ. Now that sounds really good on the surface, but all it is is a statement that says doctrine doesn't really matter. Let's just go out there. Let's not worry about whether we're standing on the truth. Let's not worry about what's really behind the doctrine of salvation. Let's just stop arguing about it all and we'll just say doctrine's not really all that important. Now, what's happened to us is that around the beginning of the 20th century, Baptists uh, stopped arguing about doctrine. They stopped arguing about the sovereignty of God and salvation. And then you came up with this mishmash of decisional regeneration and the psychology of salvation. Now, regeneration is not about psychology and philosophy. Salvation is not an appeal to man's intellect. It's a change of mind that's been affected by God to enable a man to believe. Now, folks, that is historic Baptist doctrine. I'd love to change the sign out front that say, Bram Baptist Church, a historical Baptist church. Now, I'm telling you to do is we need to stand for the right doctrine. Keep on standing on it. Don't move the ancient landmarks. If Jesus taught it, if Paul taught it, if John and Peter taught it, then I want to teach it too. I want to stand on it. And believe me, folks, I'm going to argue for it as long as it takes. We'll just keep arguing. Now, you understand why I feel so blessed to be the pastor of Berean Baptist Church because many of you have said, well, if that's what the Bible teaches, then I want to know about it. Let's learn about it. So stand for the defense of doctrine. Now, along those lines, stand for the defeat of the devil. Now, some of you would say, well, what a trite statement that is. What do you mean, stand for the defeat of the devil? Doesn't everybody stand for the defeat of the devil? That's what churches are doing, aren't they? They want to defeat the devil. We're all doing the same thing. Well, listen to some preaching and see how much emphasis there is put on Satan. Most people that go to church today don't even realize or they're not even convinced that there's a personal devil. You see, when there's no preaching about sin, there's no preaching about hell, then the devil kind of slides out the window with that. And so when people begin to teach Genesis chapter 3, it becomes a metaphor. The metaphor is not that man fell in the garden and and he was tempted by Satan and all of those things. What that really is is just to tell us how we ought to be good and we need to listen to good influences. And so the devil becomes a caricature to many people. He's a little joke. He's a figment of the imagination. God just sort of throws him into the Bible for a little comic relief. Because he's the guy, you know, runs around with the red suit, and the pointed tail, and the pitchfork, and all of that. And so when people come to that place, what happens is Satan has finally won. And so when you ask the question, who doesn't want to defeat the devil? Well, the answer is nobody's going to try to defeat something that doesn't exist. Now, I preached a whole series of messages from Ephesians chapter 6 on the wiles of the devil. There's a spiritual war that's, warfare that's taking place all around us. And in many churches, the battle's already over, and there's no debate about who won. Now, I don't mean that God's been defeated, but if you just go back to the book of Genesis and read the story there, the Garden of Eden, you discover Satan became the usurper of God's authority, and all of these churches really have just been a part of Satan's system ever since. Then I heard a complaint the other day. I have a complaint department. It's underneath my desk, and, it, and I... Throw the complaints in there. But I heard a complaint the other day, and uh, this person said, well, Pastor Smith says too much about what other people believe. I ought not really say anything because uh, about what other che- t- churches teach. Don't say anything about that. Folks, listen, fighting the devil means that you have to fight him on his front. Jesus and the apostles did that. WWJD. Let me tell you what WWJD when the scribes and the Pharisees were sitting over there in the synagogues and they were preaching all the virtues about their self-righteous religion, what did Jesus do? Well, he didn't say, well, I don't want to talk about what they're doing over there in the synagogue. I mean, I don't want to badmouth the scribes and the Pharisees. They've got their beliefs. We've got our beliefs. and So let's just live and let live. Don't argue and fight. Don't argue over these things. Don't blog about it. Certainly not. Now, Jesus told a whole multitude of people that had been to those synagogues and they knew what Rabbi Levi was saying and they knew what Rabbi Johnson was saying and Rabbi Osteen was saying and Rabbi Benedict, number 16. They, they knew what they were all saying. And, and he said to them, he said, "...unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven." Now, what was Jesus doing? He was naming the names he was hitting the perversions of the devil head-on, fighting the devil right on his own front. You see, you have to confront error, and you do that by exposing the error. Part of teaching you the truth is telling you what you need to stay away from. Now, folks, here's what happened. In the, in the very earliest part of church history, there there was error that started to creep into the church. And those errors were combated, and they were defeated. And that's why we have truth today. Our forefathers friends, did argue. They did debate the Scriptures. And it didn't make any difference how many people said otherwise and how many people have been arguing about it and how much time it took. They argued the Scriptures. And because they did, because they confronted those heresies, we have truth today. And if they hadn't done it, we wouldn't have truth and we wouldn't have churches preaching the truth. So I'm not going to stop exposing the doctrine of Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses and Roman Catholics and even Baptists if I have to. Folks, stand for something. Stand for the Lord. Stand with your leader and stand for the faith. Fight the devil on all fronts. Now, let me calm down a little bit. We got a little bit more here. There's another aspect of standing that I think you need to hear about here. There was a problem of division creeping into the church. And so this is why Paul says in verse number 2, I beseech you and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, I'm just going to briefly touch on this part of it tonight because I've got a couple of messages that are coming up dealing with this, this this very issue of division in the church and getting along with one another. But here are two ladies that have a problem with each other. So fourthly, stand with your fellows. Division has the potential to crumble a church from within. Now, sometimes we think that what we do is we just fight the devil on the outside. But we find... That really, most of the time, we're fighting the devil on the inside. More often, we've got to fight him right here. Jesus said, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. The official motto of the state of Kentucky is, United we stand, divided we fall. That motto was adopted in 1792 when Kentucky first became a state. And the reason they adopted it was because Isaac Shelby, who was the first governor of Kentucky... See, I went to school and took Kentucky history. I know these things. So Isaac Shelby, who was the first governor of Kentucky, fought in the Revolutionary War. And he knew what would happen if the colonies were divided. And he knew that if there was any of the colonies that decided to split off, then the enemy would be found on our continent. We would have an enemy within And we couldn't defeat Britain unless we were all united. We couldn't have an enemy within. Now, folks, the same thing is true in the church. You can't fight in here and expect the win out there. Now, let me give you two thoughts very quickly, and then we'll be through. First, don't form factions. Two women in the church, Euodius and Syntyche, were in disagreement with one another. Now, let me take you back just a moment here to the founding of the church at Philippi. The founding, in the founding of the church, women were indispensable. Now, some people say, well, Paul hated women. And that's why Paul writes all those things about women are to be, the woman is to be in subjection to her husband, the husband's the head of the home. And so Paul just hated women. That's why he said things like that. Nothing could be further from the truth. Paul often mentioned women in the closing of his letters, and, and he, he talked about their invaluable work in his ministry. And we're going to see it in the text here in just a moment. But let's go here to the founding of the church at Philippi. Turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 16. And this is where we find Paul's first visit to the city. Now, Paul's custom, as we studied when we went through the book of Acts, his custom was to go into the synagogues, and there he would begin to preach there first. But in this case, there doesn't seem to be a synagogue in Philippi. And so by the providence of God and that is the divine, that is the divine sovereign providence of God. By God's providence, Paul went down to the river, and there he found some ladies. Now look at verse number 13, Acts chapter 16. And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by the riverside, where prayer was wont to be made, and we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized and her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. Now, here is a church that started with women. There was a group of them that had gathered together to pray, And Paul just went and joined their prayer group. And when he did, he started to preach the gospel to them. Lydia, in particular, was saved. And so she became the seed of this church. Now, I'm not going to go on reading from here, but you can read it a little bit later. The next person was a damsel. There was a young girl who was possessed with the devil. And then Paul cast that devil out of her. And I don't have any doubt that she was saved. And so I think that she became a part of this church. So here you have these two women and possibly more because of that encounter that's at the river. And you go on reading a little bit further, and the next conversion in Philippi is the Philippian jailer and his family. So there you have his wife, and she gets saved. So what you have here, the beginnings of the church, is with mostly with women. So women are integral to this church. And we find this out in our text verses. Paul said that these particular women labored with him in the gospel. So here are two women that took part in bringing others to Christ, and they were working together to do it. But then there was something that happened between them. The problem became bigger than winning souls to Christ and growing the church. And so their selfishness over this problem that they had with one another, the argument that they had, began to hinder the work of the church. So now you can see why that Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 3, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Then after that, Paul goes into that uh, great discourse about the condescension of Christ and then his subsequent exaltation. Now, the impetus for all of that is the division that's building in this church. Now, Paul is dealing with it substantially. I mean, he's dealing with it gently, but substantially by going into this marvelous church doctrine. And so he's teaching the people, stop forming factions. The cause of the gospel is bigger than any one of us. And folks, it's bigger than the sum total of us. So we can't have factions in the church. And that's what I want you to see first. When you factionalize the church, when you whisper and backbite, and you have all these little rifts that are going on, you cannot build the house of God. So how do you grow a church? You grow with the gospel of Christ. And you grow it with the testimony of Christ. And if people cannot see Christ's likeness in you, then you stop the gospel dead in its tracks. And so in chapter 2, Paul goes on and he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And all of that is about putting yourself aside, working together for the common good. United we stand, divided we fall. And if you ever think that you must win the argument because somehow you feel slighted, that is simply a selfish attitude. It's exalting self, and it's not going to help the church. Now, Paul uses an interesting word in the third verse. He says, yoke fellow. We all know what a yoke is. A yoke is something that you hook on two animals to put them together so they can pull together. And that's what we're doing. We're pulling together. So we're in it together. Let's stand together. Stand with your fellows. Now, the second point that I want to make here is kind of an old cliche, and that is take one for the team. Now, look at verse 3 again. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Now, do you see that next phrase, and with other my fellow laborers? Labors, that next to the last phrase. That's kind of an unfortunate translation here because it's actually a different word in the Greek than the word laborers that we see earlier in in this text. Fellow laborers actually has to do more with athletes on a team. It's more like teammates. And so that's the reference that Paul's really trying to get across here, not speaking about something like farm labor. So what Paul is saying is that these women were once running the race with me. And isn't that a common metaphor that Paul uses throughout his teachings? He talks about running a race. And he says, these women were running the race with me. There were athletes, all of us were athletes on the same team. And now they need to be taught another cliche, there is no I in team. Now let me refer you to another verse of Scripture that kind of helps to explain it. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Here Paul says, now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, Because you go to law one with another. Why do you not rather take wrong? And why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? The church at Corinth had a problem with church members uh, have all kinds of disputes. They have these lawsuits and they're taking them before civil magistrates. Now, Paul says that it's better for you to just take the loss. He says, just eat it. Like Weird Al Yankovic said, you just eat it because... Any other thing is a bad testimony. Some of you don't know what I'm saying, do you? uh, Any other thing is a bad testimony in, in front of other people. Now, this is what Paul is also saying to these ladies in Philippi. Just eat it. Eat that. Eat that. Suffer yourself to be defrauded. Take one for the team. Put your selfishness aside for the good of all. So here we have things to stand for. Stand for the Lord. Stand with the leader. Stand for the faith. And stand with your fellows. Now... I can't end the message without one more comment, and I'd be so remiss if I did not mention this one. Fill in these last blanks in your listening sheet. The doctrines of God's grace are on every page. The doctrines of God's grace are on every page. Now, isn't that that what I said a little bit earlier? Where do we find it here? In the midst of all these teachings where Paul is dealing with other things, he's talking about standing for something, he's dealing with church doctrine, he's dealing with division, Now, how is Paul going to work in the doctrines of grace in this place? Well, I hope you don't miss it. Look for it in the last part of verse number 3. The last phrase, whose names are in the book of life. What is it that John says in the Revelation? You can look it up later, but in the 17th uh, chapter, verse number 8, he tells us when the names were written. It was before the foundation of the world. Folks, this stuff is too good for me to make up. I mean, this, this, this is everywhere. Well, some people say, well, you know, when you get saved, that's when God writes your name in the book of life. You've kind of you've surprised him a little bit, you know. He didn't realize that was going to happen. So when you got saved, you wrote your name in the book of life. I've just listened to a preacher today on television who said that very thing. You get saved and the angels write your name in the book of life. And we used to sing that song, there's a new name written down in glory. There aren't any new names written down in glory. The names have been there since the foundation of the world. They're the old names. And the same old names that have always been there, they're the names of people that Christ died to save. God knows it all. They're all there. Folks, the doctrine matters. You find it everywhere here. Now, the last phrase makes a whole lot of sense, doesn't it? It should to us now. Because that's Jesus' doctrine, that's Paul's doctrine, and that's my doctrine too. And I hope it's yours, because that's what the Bible teaches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we've had to be in your house tonight and to talk about your word. Lord, we do pray about this serious problem of divisions and factions in churches. We know, Lord, we can't do your work if we fight on the inside. So we have to have a unified front. We have to be determined that we're going to stand up for your word, stand for our doctrine, and then... Keep things pure in here so we can affect the world that's out there. Bless our people, Lord. We thank you for their interest in your word, for being here tonight to hear it preached. And, Lord, just bless each one through the message tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.